How many stories are there um, of suffering that you're aware of? Out there, in here, in your own heart, the illustrations don't fall far from the tree of our own lives. The amount of suffering that's going on in foreign lands as we speak, uh, either uh, it, in Ukraine or Turkey or Syria or North Korea or China or portions of Africa or areas of our own country, just overwhelming when one stops to consider the actual lives of people that are affected adversely. The real people, just like you and me, struggling, wrestling with life, and yet all these other things happening to them that are significant difficulty. The pain is palpable when you read the news or when you look around or when you feel your own difficulty. You have lots of questions, lots of hurts. Perhaps you're dealing with sickness this morning. Uh, perhaps it's the first time you've been so sick. Perhaps it's just like this series of ongoing sicknesses, and it just keeps coming, keeps coming. Perhaps you've been diagnosed with something that doesn't have the end that you would prefer. Perhaps your relationships have been damaged, and you live in the pain of unmet expectations and misunderstandings and hurtful communications. The reality is suffering is plentiful in humanity. Um, and again, we don't have to go outside of our own lives to really understand that. And the reality also, when someone suffers, to whatever extent we suffer, to great extent, sometimes to little amounts of extent, it doesn't really matter, we tend to lose hope. We just, we just do. We tend to look for hope in some other place, and we lose hope that God is for us. We don't know if tomorrow is worth it. We despair. We get angry. Uh, we grow despondent, we grow depressed, and we simply cannot see a way out. And Israel is no different than us. They had significant loss of hope when they suffered as well, back in the day when this was written for them. You might consider when they were enslaved in Egypt that they had given up hope of ever reaching the promised land. When they failed to capture Canaan the first time, it's evident that they lost all hope and they simply wished to return to Egypt. You remember hearing them say, we, it was better there. Um, and when God drove them out of Canaan into exile in later years, they lost all hope of ever returning to the land. There's a reality of this lost hope amid suffering. And the writer of this narrative of Genesis that we come to today, again, intends to give God's people hope. In the passage that was just read, he intends to give hope. He intended to give the people of Israel hope thousands of years ago, and he intends to give hope to you this morning and to myself this morning today. So do you feel your need for hope? Um, where is that need most manifest in your life? When, when, when I ask the question, do you need hope, what, what is it that comes to your mind? Oh, I need hope in that situation. I need hope in this situation. I need hope in that. The, the whole world needs hope. The, the whole world is looking for hope. You are looking for hope. We're crying out for hope. Everything we do in life has us looking for hope somewhere. Everybody from every tribe and every nation, there's not one person having been made in the image of God who is not in the depth of their very being, crying out for hope and looking for it all over the place. So I want to look at this text this morning and consider what the hope is that God is pointing Israel to and pointing us to in this passage. The first point I want to look at is this in our first text. We're just going to read through the text and kind of work our way through it and then come to a, a conclusion. The first point is this, the sovereign king... 
that we talked about last week, the sovereign king provides mankind with full peace and absolute rest in the paradise of his presence. That'll stay up there for a few moments. The sovereign king provides mankind with full peace and absolute rest in the paradise of his presence. When we come to verse 4 in chapter 2, we come to the first set of 10 generation kind of moments in, in Genesis. And it is a way that you can look at Genesis and see these, these areas of significance that these sto- the story is being progressed through Genesis. And we come to the first one today. It's an important literary feature that would be very helpful for us to understand uh, as we read uh, through Genesis. Each of these uh, begin with words like, these are the generations of, or, or these are the descendants of, or this is the history of. And each time it's stated um, throughout Genesis, it's meant to introduce us to something that's happening in that moment. Like so, so at this time, in this moment, in this moment, in this time, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. And in that day, here's what happened. These are the generations, again, of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. And goes on to speak of that. Genesis began with God creating his very good kingdom on earth in seven days, as we spoke of last week in this first literary structure, introduce us to what happens on this, in this time, during this time. It's not meant to be some sort of historical report necessarily regarding what happened in chronological fashion, but in the literary nature of the text, you'll notice there's a lot of poetry in this text, in this passage in Genesis 2 and then partially 3 as well. We're given an enormous amount of topical realities to know and to understand, things that are so foundational to our life, our understanding of God, our understanding of supernatural realm, our understanding of ourselves. Verse 5 tells us that in the day the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, uh, the earth was barren. It had no plants, it had no herbs, it had no rain, it had no one to till the ground. And we're told in verse 6 there's a mist coming up from the land and it was watering the whole face of the ground. So that's a picture that we have. We come to verse 7 and we read, The Lord God then formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living creature. And the emphasis is not on the how of the formation, but that God formed and God breathed life into him. All creation, all, all mankind, each one of us in this room, God knows and he breathes life into us. The focus moves so quickly from the created earth to the pinnacle of God's creation here. Uh, from the dust of the ground. Man is the creature. He is not the creator. He's not a potential God. He's not a God that the nations would mention that, that there's a possibility of. As a matter of fact, kings of those days were seen as, as gods. He's, though, on the other hand, according to Genesis, he is made from what all humans are made from, that is, from God and from the dust of the ground frail. Still, mankind is God's special creation. God himself carefully and loving, lovingly forming the man and breathing life into him. And there's a reality of humility that, that just forms from the very beginning. We are creatures. We are not the creator. There's a huge, enormous distinction that is being made here. The narrator goes on to inform us that Yahweh planted an amazing garden on the earth. Verse 8 says this, The Lord God planted a garden in the 
uh, in Eden, in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that's pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The garden is true paradise. And when you picture the garden, you know, don't, don't imagine your garden in the backyard, right? Don't imagine even like a nice English garden, or if you've ever seen the movie The Secret Garden, don't even imagine that as beautiful as that is. This is a lush, secure garden in the east. It's the garden of the Lord, as Ezekiel would call it, the garden of God. And just like the tabernacle and then the temple would be later on in the Old Testament, the garden is the special dwelling place of Yahweh, of God Almighty. His presence is uniquely in that garden, and it's experienced by man, if you can imagine, unhindered up till this point. The garden isn't simply a nice idea or a metaphor. I mean, the author uses four rivers, three countries to specifically place it on earth, in a location, in a real place, a beautiful, peaceful place where the man who was created can have specific communion with God and enjoy every good gift from him. Verse 9 says that every tree was pleasant to the sight and good for food. And there was this tree of life, a tree whose fruit could keep Adam alive forever. And in verse 15, it speaks that even work, even work was a joy. Even work in that paradise and the presence of God gave meaning and purpose and, and real joy to human life. And when we get to verse 16, we continue to see how God continues uh, the good in his kingdom. He, he says that man is free to eat from every tree of the garden, even the tree of life. So just have at it. Just enjoy, enjoy my garden. Enjoy this time in the newness of life and relationship with me. He's gracious. He's amazing, glorious, omnipotent, generous king. This is the king that we spoke of last week. This continues to be the same king who is so glorious. And among all that he provides, he also provides one prohibition. Verse 17. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Now there is, there is grace in the warning, right? It is, there is goodness in the warning. There is the reality of there is something here that is beautiful to the eye, but it is destructive to your soul. This goodness of God is also seen in just the reality that God treats the man in contrast to the animal's as a moral creature who can decide to obey God willingly. There's absolutely nothing wrong with this commandment, but as we'll see, it's the prohibition that raises the conflict that's to come. It's the tension that we come to. The, rea the reality is God in his sovereign goodness places man, places a clear choice before man. Continue in communion with God in the beauty and wonder and rest and peace of his presence by trusting him and obeying him in all the ways, or break all of that by disobeying his commandment and experience judgment and, and death. Uh, the stakes simply could not be higher in, in the very first part of God's word. It's telling a story. And so with that stated, the narrator moves on. Something good um, is missing. 
in paradise. Verse 18, the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. After all the animals had passed by Adam and names were given to all the animals, verse 20 tells us that there was not found any helper as his partner. So the good creator, gracious again, goes to work and fashions a woman from one of Adam's ribs. And when Adam sees her, he flips out. He's ecstatic. He says in verse 23, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She also, she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Now we spoke of this a number of weeks ago in detail uh, in our We Believe series. So, so I'll just point you to that excellent sermon by Dan for a much broader treatment of the topic of male and female and marriage. And today I just want us to consider how the parallelism in the Hebrew poetry shows us just how closely men and women are related, the same flesh, the same bones, but they're different from one another. There's even a play on the words in the original for both. Man is ish, women are isha. There's, these two will complement each other perfectly. There's a, a creational beauty and wonder and glory in the entirely equal, beautiful, glorious, complementary nature of men and women. And certainly, humanity can spoil it. Now, we're, doing, we're just doing an amazing job of spoiling it in these days. But there is beauty in how God created male and female, two specific genders, and only two specific genders, equal but very different. Now as we come to verse 25, we're told of something that must have been absolutely astonishing for Israel as an as a eastern nation who had a strong sense of shame and, and covered most of their bodies with long robes and scarves at this time in, in, in history when, when they were receiving this word from God, from Moses. Adam and Eve says in verse 25, we're both naked. And there was no shame whatsoever. Um, I, I know we, we can't quite grasp the innocence of this reality. We, we especially in an over-sexualized culture as we are, but in a foreign area, in, in the ancient Near East, in Eastern culture even today, this nakedness without shame is, is just unheard of. Then, in the garden, naked, no shame. It's as though they're innocent like little children at play. It's as though their marriage, Adam and Eve's marriage, absolutely perfect in an absolutely perfect home. This is paradise in the garden of God. The author emphasizes simply how good the sovereign king made everything uh, in the beginning for human beings. He created the man. He gave him life with his breath. He placed him in a safe garden where he had plenty of food and meaningful work and gave him a perfect partner, peace and rest and joy, assurance of the love of God and the provision of God and the presence of God in the paradise of God. I mean, is that not something that we all long for? That's something that they had. They had that. That's the reality of the situation. Now recall that Israel, when they were receiving this word, they were forcing a vast array of difficulties. And through the years, they had, they had experienced significant difficulties. And you might imagine, at this point in the story, amid the many trials in the past and the current struggles they were experiencing, certainly they must have been asking the question, what in the world happened to that? Because this is not my experience today. So what in the world happened that, that all of a sudden now I'm experiencing significant sorrow? I'm experiencing significant sickness. The whole generation of Israel um, totally wiped out. My mom and dad, my grandparents wiped out in, in the wilderness 
on account of their disobedience. And now we come to the edge of the, um, the promised land. And, and we're fearing these, these enormous peoples that are out there along with our powerful gods. And we're dealing with our own fear and anxieties and sorrows and all that kind of stuff. As beautiful as chapter 2 was in the reality of joy and peace and provision in the presence of God in the garden, what in the world happened to have allowed such sorrow to be experienced in my life? Painful relationships, abuse, death. And you and I would be right to ask the same questions. Matter of fact, do we not often cry out, Why, Lord? Why is this happening to me? Again, well, the story continues into chapter 3, the second, second point. Mankind's rejection of the sovereign king results in the suffering and death we experience away from the paradise of his presence. Chapter 3 begins immediately by introducing us to another character. It says in verse 1, first part, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And the serpent sounds like a sinister character coming into the story, and we would be right, he certainly is. But who is he? Who is this serpent? In the ancient world, the serpent was often worshipped as the god of healing. Not, not simply Greek history, as our medical symbolism points to, but, but Ugaritic, Sumerian, Egyptian gods that the Israelites would have been very familiar with and fearful of. In the ancient Near East, the serpent was a symbol of much more than simply a snake. Certainly, there's something very specific about this serpent in the text. What, what is it? Is it not that the serpent speaks? That's, that's, a, that's a problem for most Western people, right? Um, this story is made up. That's the way that most in the West would view this. What's going on with this snake? Because snakes don't speak. Not even, not even in the garden. Who is he? Where did he come from? Now, there's way too much to speak of here, and massive volumes have been written on this, but it would be good for us to know that there really is more going on here than simply a talking snake that Eve somehow feels okay interacting with. The original word used here could be utilized for three intermingled definitions or explanations. Consider what this scholar writes. He says, the serpent, that is Nakash, was an image commonly used in reference to a divine throne guardian. And given the context of Eden, that helps identify the villain as a divine being. The divine adversary dispenses divine information using it to goad Eve. He gives her an oracle or an omen. He says, you won't really die. God knows when you eat, you'll be like one of the Elohim. And lastly, a shining appearance conveys a divine nature. All the meanings telegraph something important. These three things are, are um, interestingly under, understood as we process this reality. The, the narrator wants his readers... And that's harder for us to grasp, but for Israel, not as hard to understand, to understand that this is no mere serpent. The Israelites would have understood this to be a powerful being, a divine being, even a being that could be trusted to speak on behalf of the divine. Certainly at one point, this being was created good, because all things that were created were good at one point. Outside of this context that we have come to in Genesis, this being was created but has now become evil as we witness how he questions God's command and even calls him a liar. So again, who is this serpent? 
Who is this shining one? This, this one who uh, the name Nakash speaks of um, uh, bronze or, 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 or being brazen, so shining one, which you might move forward into Isaiah 14 or Ezekiel 28 or Revelation 12 or 20, even as, as considering who this is. Who is this serpent? Who is this shining one? Who is this one who is a divine throne guardian with information about the divine realm? Well, as we read in Isaiah 11 and Ezekiel, or, I'm sorry, Isaiah 14 and especially Ezekiel 28, as we come to the New Testament and we hear Jesus and John speak, we come to realize that this created one, this shining one, this serpent is clearly the devil. A fallen, created angel of God who God speaks clearly of in Ezekiel 28, specifically in Revelation 12, verse 12 and following. Jesus tells the Pharisees this as he speaks to them in John chapter 8. He says, you, brothers, are, the, are of the father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. And interestingly, I was just thinking about this yesterday, Jesus even calls Pharisees, serpents, and, and uh, offsprings of vipers. Um, just an interesting connection. The, the Apostle John wrote in Revelation of, of a, a great war that had taken place in heaven, and he writes this. As far as I'm concerned, this is something that happened way in the past. The great dragon, he says, Revelation 12, the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown thrown down with him. Ezekiel 28, if you read that passage, interesting, in the, the king of Tyre, he's talking about the king of Tyre, and then he moves, he moves into this other imagery of something that the king of Tyre represents, and it seems as though he's talking about this one, a beautiful created being who was in Eden in the garden of God. Certainly the king of Tyre was not in Eden in the garden of God. He was an anointed guardian cherub who, who who in pride rejected God, the role of Yahweh, and sinned, and he was cast from the mountain of God. And we could go on and on here, but the point being made is that this is no mere talking snake. Uh, this is specifically the devil, the father of lies, speaking to Eve. Well, what does he say? He says this. He says, hey, did God actually say it's hard to get the serpent out of your head, right? Hard to get this picture of a, of a, of a talk, talking, this, this, this snake talking. So it's, it is the enemy speaking here, a shining one. Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Now notice how crafty the devil is here in twisting God's word. God had actually said, you can eat of any tree of the garden except for one. Now, what Satan does is he ignores all of God's good gifts of plenty of food and makes God's commandments sound unreasonable. And does not he still do that today, especially when we're suffering? The woman responds quickly to him by stating something in almost accurate memory, almost accurate memory. In verse 2, unfortunately, she has begun to think that maybe this shining one, serpent, Maybe there's something to what he's saying. She says this in verse 2. 
well, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, and neither shall you touch it, lest you die. And when Eve adds her own take on God's command, namely that even if you touch the tree, you'll die, the devil sees an opening, simply calls out God as an outright liar. In verse 4, he says to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now understand that this serpent is crafty. This, this is not, this, this is, this is a, this is a, a shining one. This is, this is the devil. He is the father of lies. He very, very appealing. Very um, a, appealing in the sense of he causes us to think and question and, and kind of dig into our, our processes and our pain and everything and just kind of start questioning God. So Eve's not a moron here. Eve has a lot going for her, but she's being, she's being not mindful of the promises of God and is being swayed. He says, you will not surely die. God knows that when you eat, of, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And what Satan is suggesting here is that God actually has not been as generous as she thinks that he has. And again, is this not a common theme among mankind, especially when we suffer or endure hardship? We focus so, so much, God is so good in every, every, other, every other way, but, but, but this way he's not. And maybe that casts shade on everything else he does. In, in fact, maybe he's holding back on Adam and Eve and keeping them from being you know, like, like the Elohim. He's treating it as if God created them blind, but if they just eat that one tree, that their eyes will be actually opened, and then they can decide for themselves what's good and what's evil, and they can be like the Elohim, even Yahweh Elohim. The God of all gods, the creator himself. And with that temptation, the devil leaves. And what we're left with is Adam and Eve deciding on how they're going to deal with this temptation. They certainly did not have to fall into it, right? It was a deliberate choice. And here we've come to the central scene and climax of the story. So the narrator slows the pace down, begins sketching in detail what the woman's thinking. We start to uh, see what she, um, that she's looking around and she sees that, the, you know what, the, the tree actually was good for food just like the rest of the trees. What's God talking about? The... the it's actually a delight to the eyes, just like all the other trees. And the tree was to be desired to make one wise. And, and so, like all of mankind from this point on would do, as Romans 1, verses 18 and following speaks of, she chooses to disregard God's goodness, his character, all of his provision, including the one prohibition. And she took of the fruit, and she ate, and she gave some to her husband, and he ate also. Now, Adam was the one who had received the commandment. So he had either miscommunicated the commandment or somehow it got lost in translation or something or whatever. Rea the reality is Adam was the one who received the commandment directly from God, and he should have stopped her, but he does not. And he remains silent instead, and he watches the love of his life. The one who he's so enamored by, he watches the love of his life reject God, believing him to be the liar that Satan says he is, and then he joins in on it himself. And at the core of all of this is the reality that God's creatures no longer trust the goodness of God, and doesn't believe his word, doesn't believe his character, and sin thus enters God's perfect paradise. 
and rebellion and resistance to God begins. And we see the results of the fall into sin showing up immediately. Verse 7 states this, The eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. The first result of sin is the loss of that wonderful childlike innocence. They lost the freedom of being unashamed and in perfect unity with one another. And another immediate result of sin was that they feared the one that they had just spent so much time with engaging and finding rest in and joy in. All of a sudden they feared him. Verse 8 says, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And, and rather, than, rather than being able to enjoy that, and to, to, don't you want that? Man, we want that. We want that relationship with God. They, they had that relationship with God and they, they, they ruined it. All of a sudden, communion with the Lord of life had been broken. All they felt then was guilt and fear. Adam and Eve in reality had become spiritually dead. And yet, what do we see here, just in the midst of all, all of this? But, but God was not giving up on his distrustful and disobedient creatures. He actually seeks the lost in verse 9. He's seeking them out, not with harshness, but he's seeking them out specifically as a, I think, the heart of our generous shepherd creator. He certainly knew the answers to the questions he was asking. But still, there's this movement towards them. And as the truth comes out in the next couple of verses, what do we see but Adam trying to defend himself and he's blame shifting and he doesn't simply blame Eve, but he blames God too for, you know, for, I mean, she's the woman you gave me. Um, verse 13, when God confronts Eve, she also passes the blame onto the serpent, failing to take responsibility for her own sin. And that's something that truly repeats itself throughout all of humanity. It's always somebody else's fault. It's the way, the way I was born. It's the way my parents were. It's, a, it's a this that happened or this that happened, and that's how I get to be okay with my sin before God. So what's to happen? Well, the Holy Creator and loving God begins to judge appropriately and render verdicts to the serpent, to the woman, and to the man. The Lord God said to the serpent, verse 14, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall lead all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. This is the first time that we read in the Bible about God's curse, that the, the opposite of his blessing, the absence of his, not just the absence of his blessing, but his, his action against humanity. It's, or against, against the, the, uh, the enemy in particular, because he curses the serpent, the Nakash. The, listen to this scholar again, Michael Heiser. He says, the Nakash was cursed to crawl on its belly, imagery that conveyed being cast down to the ground. In Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah 14, we see the villain cast down to uh, the arets, a term that refers literally to the dirt and metaphorically to the underworld. The curse also had him eating dirt, clearly a metaphorical reference, and snakes don't really eat dirt as food for nutrition. It's, it's not part of the natural snake diet. The point being made by the curse is that the Nakash, who wanted to be most high, will be most low instead, cast away from God and the council to earth and even under the earth in the underworld. The Nakash is even lower than the beast of the field. He's hidden from view and from life in God's world. His domain is death. 
God's judgment of Eve is in some ways intertwined with the curse of the serpent. We see in verse 16 that Eve would suffer intensified pain in childbirth, and, and yet it was important that she continue bearing children, since as we'll see, it's through her childbearing that we see a direct connection to the fate of the serpent and his offspring, and that is all who would live in rebellion to the king of the universe. It is through Eve's offspring that hope is seen. We'll see that in a few moments. Another aspect of Eve's judgment has to do with her relationship with Adam. Whereas she should have been fulfilled in ruling in, in partnership with her husband, now she's just going to desire to rule over her husband and yet experience some sort of domineering, nonsensical, authoritarian rule from him. And it's just all devastating. It's, it's like just his, life is imploding all over the place. The judgment of Adam in verses 17 through 19 didn't, uh, didn't replace God's mandate to subdue the earth and take dominion, but it did make the task immensely more difficult. Instead of living... In a blessed paradise with plenty of food, people are going to live on the earth that God has cursed. It will now produce thorns and thistles. Meaningful work will become toil. The ultimate punishment in every human being having been made from the ground will end up being returned to the ground in death. And going from paradise to, to this, absolutely devastating. In verses 22 through 24, we see humanity cast out of the paradise of Eden, turning a glorious mission into mundane drudgery, some of what we still feel today. And we feel it, right, in the sense of the glory of the omnipotent God and his mission, and it lands on us with a dull thud. Sometimes, not always. We can identify with some of it. The Lord God, whom they had such relationship with in his presence in the garden, banished them from the garden, banished them from paradise, banished them from his presence, and that's the worst punishment of all. One commentator says this. He says, The expulsion of Adam and Eve from the garden was, in the narrator's view, the real fulfillment of the divine sentence. He regarded their alienation from the divine presence as death. Look, for those, of, for those of you who are going through significant suffering, outside of healing and, and like, per, like a perfect life, the, the main thrust of what we long for is the presence of God. Oh, if we had the presence of God with us, if we knew the sweet presence of God, we could walk through anything. Well, mankind, problem, alienated from the divine presence. Adam and Eve forfeited their place in the garden of God. Sin separated them from God. Intimacy with the one whom they were created for to enjoy and give glory to was replaced with alienation from God. The one thing they needed more than anything they could not any longer have. There was no way back into paradise. Listen to verse 24 again. It says, he drove out the man and the... And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. For, for Israel, the cherubim as guardians were an easy reminder of the two cherubim that guarded the Ark of the Covenant in the tabernacle and later in the temple. Remember the, the picture. If you've seen Raiders of the Lost Ark, you have an idea. If you've looked in the back of your Bible, you've seen pictures. 
And then images of the cherubim were also seen on the curtain that divided the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple, the tabernacle. Cherubim protecting, keeping man away from the presence of God. Unless God removes the cherubim that guards us from his presence. God's judgment of human rebellion is not just increased pain in childbearing. It's not just strife for dominance in marriage. It's not just thorns and thistles in our fields and gardens or work that becomes painful toil. It's sorrow and loneliness and depression and anxiety and includes all the weights and struggles you're facing today and then, and then, then ultimately death and separation from God in paradise. Truly, this is a tragic story of paradise lost. Israel wants to know what in the world happened for us to be experiencing such enormous difficulty in this life. Sin happened. Sin happened. Rejection of God happened. And whether we fully understand the gravity of the situation or not, the reality is that on account of humanity's rejection of God and his word and disbelief in his promises and his character and a desire to be God ourselves and believing the lies of the devil and attributing evil intentions to the God who graciously created us and provided for us and promised his blessing, we continue to experience the effects of sin in our lives today. Suffering, pain, loneliness, unmet desires, broken relationships, sickness, death. We groan and even nature Nature groans for something to change. Everything is groaning because of chapter 3. It's not just a serpent. It's not just a simple Bible story that's taught in Sunday school. This is, this is our history. This is why we suffer. This is why people are going to a Christless eternity. This is, this is where it's all happening. Genesis 3. <laughs> there exists in every human being a desire for paradise. What we long for it. It has everything to do with this story. We seem to have this inner sense of need to restore something that was lost. Even those Pagans have this desire to, to redeem something, that something needs to be restored. But Eden, paradise, rest, true rest, true peace, true joy in the presence of our God for whom we were made to glorify and enjoy forever cannot return on human terms. Mankind is absolutely irrevocably lost. Mankind is destined to die and after that to face judgment. And all of it passed on from our ancient parents. Paul would say something like this in Romans 5.12 when he says, sin came into the world through one man and death through sin and so death spread to all because all sinned. See the devastation. The good news though, is seen in the middle of this tragic story where we come to our final point. The sovereign king promises that he will provide the way for mankind to enjoy the paradise of his presence once again. Even in banishing his rebellious creatures from paradise, God still extends his grace in order to eventually restore paradise on earth. 
In spite of pain and childbirth, God's blessings of procreation would remain. While the increased birth pains are are not only a reminder of God's judgment, they're also a sign of God's grace. In spite of the penalty of death and destruction, the generations of human beings are going to continue, and Eve will become the mother of all living. In verse 21, we see God's grace in that he made garments of skin for Adam and Eve and clothed them. God does not leave them to their shame, but he covers their nakedness, providing for them in, in the hostile environment that they're going to be sent out into, showing them grace and giving a hint that he will deal with the problem of sin. Israel would have clearly seen and made the connection between God covering their shame with the idea of forgiveness. The, the covering of sin, the forgiveness and provision even amid the consequences of sin. And is that not grace? You see God's grace, though, especially in verses 14 and 15. And I've alluded to it a few times already. But in cursing the serpent and in the words that God speaks, he is declaring that the devil will be defeated. He will bite the dust. The first ever major covenant God will make with his people the Adamic covenant, the promise of God in relationship. The reality is not good, but God is a covenant God. God is a covenant making God. God is a covenant keeping God. So he makes this covenant. And throughout the last 2,000 years, the church has called this, Genesis 3.15, the first sighting of the gospel. This is the good news that evil will not rule forever, but that the seed of the woman will fatally strike the serpent's head. And Genesis begins to trace the seed of the woman from Adam to Seth, who we'll come in contact with shortly, to Noah, to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and and Judah, and then the rest of the Bible is then going to follow this trail through King David and all the way to Jesus Christ and the establishment of the new covenant that we get to live in and celebrate today again in the Lord's Supper. Jesus is the seed of the woman. He is the second Adam. Jesus was tempted by Satan. He was not tempted in paradise like Adam and Eve were. He was tempted in the wilderness after 40 days of fasting. 40 nights, and he was famished. It was when Jesus was starving and tired that Satan came to him and tempted him three times. And unlike Adam, Jesus withstood the devil's temptations. But the devil still had the bite that would strike his heel. And Satan is the one who was behind the instigation of people that killed Jesus. And I was thinking about this when Kale was talking with the kids and about the betrayal that happened and what happened in the upper room that night when they were having the Lord's Supper and it says that at some point Judas was filled with who? He was filled with the devil, filled with Satan. Certainly looked like, and he went on to betray Jesus, certainly looked like a defeat for the seed of the woman because the seed of the woman died. But an amazing thing happened. Matthew 27, verse 51, reports that when Jesus breathed his last, behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And you remember, again, what it was that this curtain did. Keeping in mind Genesis 3, the cherubim guarding the way back into the presence of God. This, this curtain kept people from the presence of God. And this curtain was embroidered with cherubim as a reminder to Israel that that sinful people cannot come into the presence of a holy God. But when Jesus died, that curtain was torn in two from top to bottom, and the cherubim no longer blocked the way into God's presence. Satan's victory, 
his bite, his nipping at the heel, turned into a crushing defeat. For on the third day, Jesus rose from the dead and ascended to the right hand of God, the Father, from where he will come to judge the living and the dead. And when we read Revelation 20, we come to see that the first one to be judged will be this ancient serpent, Satan. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And after that, then, there is this that we come to as the people of God. The angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life. Last time seen, Genesis 3. Twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. Verse 14, blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life living forever, and that they may enter the city by the gates. Paradise is just not lost at all. Through Jesus Christ, and through Jesus Christ alone, paradise will be restored on earth. Listen, everyone is looking for hope amid the ups and downs of this life. Each of us are enduring various temptations and struggles. Everyone is. We look sideways and we compare our suffering with others, and some suffering is certainly worse than others, but the fact is, every single, you look around, every single person is suffering in some manner. We're all experiencing the ramifications of the tragic events of this story that we've come to today, and so are your neighbors across the street. So are those across the entire world. Your loneliness, your sorrow, your sickness, your emptiness, your depression, your anxieties, your fears, all common to man on account of humanity's rejection of God. And yet each of us, no matter what it is we are going through, have this hope that we've come to, a steadfast hope, a steadfast assurance from the king, from from not just any king, but from our king, an assurance that is desperately needed, seen specifically in the Adamic covenant that we spoke of and realized in the new covenant of his blood. The paradise we all long for in unhindered relationship with God will one day be restored on earth, and we will once again, we will once again enjoy full unhindered communion with God. Certainly the devil still speaks poisonous, lying words that cause us to question the goodness of our gracious God, especially amid the varying struggles we have on this side of eternity. The doubt, the, the activities of God, doubting his words and his promises. But friends, until that day, when we have unhindered relationship with him, when, when, when this story comes to a full culmination, when... It's not just the Garden of Eden, but it is the heavenly garden of God that comes on this new creation, this new earth. Until that day, not only does Jesus rule and reign, but his kingdom continues to spread, and he's promised to be with us. He's promised to keep us and to guard us, even amid temptation and loneliness and emptiness and fear and doubt, and he has given us the eternal spirit as the guarantor until that day, the spirit indwelling us, God really with us, 
filling us, strengthening us, comforting us, keeping us, trusting, believing, lifting our gaze to Christ, the victorious Lord, and our Savior, and our Redeemer, our friend, and our God. This is all the needed assurance from our King for a very tired group of people like you and like me. We who are part of a much larger, more glorious story than we could ever think find hope here above all else. Your story, as important and, and, and difficult and amazing as it is, is just part of this huge meta-narrative of God making much of himself and us finding great joy in him. Not only then, not only then, but right now in this day, in this morning. So we sing out, we sing out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. We sing, worthy is your name. We sing Jesus' name above all names, for he certainly has the name above all names. God's gracious promise of paradise restored gives certain hope, needed assurance today to all of us who are suffering as we await his glorious appearing. It is, it is God's gracious promise of paradise for us that we look for and we long for. May, may you and I consider and, and place the entirety of our hope in our God, in the one who is good and omnipotent and the covenant-keeping God. And, and would, I, would I encourage you to, to potentially pick up this book. There's three copies on the book cart. Just feel free to go by and grab one. If it's something that you will read, don't let it sit on your shelf. Because listen, the hope of heaven is not just not just something far off. It's a, it's a present hope for us. Because God's word is true and all his promises are yes and amen in Jesus. And so when we cling, when we, when we kind of center in all of our problems, it's, 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 very diff- it's very easy to lose hope. And so we look up and we say, now, where's my hope rest? My hope doesn't just rest there. My hope rests in God right now who is keeping me and guarding me until that day. 